Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Chris Tenmans. We are live. I'm live today one-on-one with my friend Jason Rosenbaum from St. Louis Public Radio, also an adjunct professor at WashU right here in St. Louis, Missouri. Jason, thanks for jumping on, man. How are you? I'm doing as well as somebody who's been in his house for almost 22 days can be. But I know that I, I have it a lot better than a lot of people, so there will be no complaints on this show. You know what I'm, I'm not that. You know what I'm not complaining about? Your Eastside Tavern t-shirt. Hello. Oh yeah. <laughs> Represent Columbia. I got I got to provide some sort of love for Eastside Tavern. It's a place that helped me through some really tough times in the <laughs> late 2000s uh, professionally. Made a lot of friends there. I saw that they were doing a, a fundraiser and they managed to actually go over their goal because Great for Sal. So much, yes. There's just so much love for that that place from all the the weirdos like me who who frequented there, and I still go there every time I'm in Colombia. So I I love it. <laughs> That's such a great thing, man, and I love that we can connect on that. Uh, I know we're just getting started again. If you guys can check out Jason's work with uh, St. Louis Public Radio, great follow on Twitter. Uh, politics. He's also an interesting dude. It's not all politics, and you can uh, obviously download podcasts, and we'll get into everything that Jason does shortly. Uh, I'll share a quick Eastside Tavern story with you that I think is super relevant now, or super funny anyways. Uh, I hung out there quite a bit. Uh, my friends were in a band called Bald Eagle that they used to play a bunch of shows there. And, I've heard uh, of them. Yeah, they're, they're a super fun rock band. They played there and uh, and down the street at Mojo's all the time. But the uh, I got to know Sal well, and then obviously Big Pants behind the bar. And <laughs> I'm in there one night on like a Tuesday night. I'd worked at Flat Branch at the time. A few of us go down there. Okay, it's Tuesday. It's the winter. It's terrible. And I'll try and make this short enough. I'm sitting at the bar, big pants behind the bar. A scruffy little guy walks in. It's super cold outside. And I get, I kind of look at him. I'm like, hmm. And I look at big pants. He kind of gives me the, do you know this guy? So the guy sits down and he's like taking his coat off and everything. So I get this stupid thing in my head and I jump behind the bar and I'm like, hey, man, sorry, real quick. Just need to see some ID. And I felt like I was uh, okay to do that. He's like, oh, oh, of course, of course. He pulls his ID out and hands it to me. And I go, oh, I knew it. And it was Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> and, and, and I checked his ID. Because at the time, we recognized him from all things, from probably the Comedy Central special it, that had come out. But it was Out Cold, the movie, <laughs> that we recognized him from. And so he was, was from. I don't even. I, I vaguely remember that movie. I could not tell you what it's about. But it's, of all it, the things of Zach Galifianakis is from, that would not be the thing I would have recognized him from. At the time, he didn't have quite so many credits, so he was doing a stand-up show at Truman and was passing uh, through Columbia. So we ended up hanging out, and of all things, we take a shot of Jaeger, which was his choice. And then when I saw it in the the movie The Hangover, they did. I'm like, I've done that with Zach too. But yeah, I thought that was super funny, and I always love telling that story. And I remember him leaving, and he was like, "Where should I stay?" And I was like, a broke young person. And I'm like, "Oh, Super Eight down the road." He's like, "I have budget, man." So I sent him to that Moose uh, Hotel in Columbia. Oh Which, yeah, Stone Creek. Stone Creek Inn. Inn. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I was thinking about that place like maybe two or three weeks ago, but I forgot the name. But 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 this show has reminded me what that that place is called. So. Uh, the hotel sponsored by Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, I, I, funny story. I was in Colombia before current events caused us right. not to leave. And I was at the Tiger Hotel. Uh, the Reynolds Journalism Institute had actually put me up there because I was judging a competition. And uh, when I was checking in, the person behind me was Tyree Kill. 
Tyree Kill was in Columbia. <laughs> and I turned to somebody who was with him. I was like, is that Tyree Kill? And they're like, yeah. And I made the decision, like, not to say hi to him or take a photo with him. I just sort of left him alone. But he still had his goggles. And this was, like, five days after they won the Super Bowl, maybe even a week. He still had this, his goggles. Was, it's, it's crazy, you know? What was he doing? What When athletes are in Columbia, I think one thing, and I think I'm always right, but what are you doing in Columbia if you're Tyree Kill? Visiting, uh, probably visiting going a friend? to tavern, I suppose. That's, okay, I mean, that's now we I figured it out. Columbia. Exactly, doing some karaoke. Uh, <laughs> so besides hanging out at Eastside Tavern and uh, chasing athletes at the Tiger Hotel, uh, you're here with St. Louis Public Radio, which that's what we need to jump into first. Um, you mentioned Eastside getting you through some tough times. What were those tough times? I'm guessing you, you went to journalism school. You've worked your way up to a really a, a unique position with public radio here in St. Louis, fairly coveted, uh, very respected position. Uh, I guess maybe let's start there, man. What was uh, journalism school like? And then I guess leading into those tough times and what got you here? Yeah, actually, uh, yesterday when I was talking with Sarah Kenzior on her Twitter live event, I talked about the tough times in more detail than I've ever before. Uh, truth be told, in 2008, 2011, I was jettisoned, fired from my jobs um, at, at the places I was employed. I'm not going to blame the economy. I'm going to blame myself. Like I felt like I was pretty immature back then. Um, but that kind of dove me into like the world of freelancing, which was which was very challenging for me. Um, so that's what I was referring to, too. And uh, I'm at a point in my career where I'm like not really afraid to talk about that, I guess, to people one on one. And at this point, it's been such a long time that it's probably good to talk about your your low points as well as your high points. So I'll start at the beginning. Like I've been wanting to work in journalism since I was maybe in middle school. I, I, I worked for my middle school newspaper. There, we actually did have a newspaper <laughs> in middle school. Believe Good it for or your not. middle school. Yeah. And uh, I worked at, at newspapers pretty much from junior high, high school. I worked for the Maneater. I was at worked the Columbia, Missouri, and I worked for the Columbia Tribune. Um, from 2006 to 2008, I was their state government reporter. I left after 2008 um, and I became a freelancer. And I've been thinking about the 2008 and 2009 period of my life a lot during this because, and, and I understand I'm talking about this from a very privileged position because a lot of people who like suddenly find themselves in unemployment have a lot less than I had back then. Right. Um, but I feel like I was able to get through those times because I was able to really lean on what I classify as a social circle, which I actually kind of created at Eastside Tavern, whether it was karaoke night, whether it was the at yet, at yet as yet unnamed comedy show. Yeah, still um, running. I was, yeah, I was, I was involved with both of those things, and I found that being involved with those two kind of social circles really helped get me through some really tough professional times. And what really is concerning for me, for a lot of people now who are unemployed, who have a lot less than I did back then and have now, is if they do find themselves 
without a job now, they can't they can't lean on the social things that kind of get them through difficult times. They can't go to restaurants. They can't hang out with friends at bars. They can't do karaoke. They can't join like a comedy troupe. Um, and, and then there's like this whole other class of people that have to work right now. They're putting themselves in danger, whether it be people that work at restaurants or grocery stores or janitors. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot recently because right now, as you kind of alluded to before, as, as a, where I am now, I, I feel like I'm in a, such a different place than I was in 2008, 2009. I've right. worked with some really amazing people that have helped me get to the point where I am in my career. As I said before, like I, I definitely haven't gone through my career without faults of my own. And um, sometimes you, you learn from kind of your, you know, initial flubs and mistakes in journalism to make you a better person now. So yeah, right now I'm, I work for St. Louis Public Radio. I've been there for about six years. I never thought I would be in broadcast journalism. I thought I would be in print forever. Um, and here I am on a, on a podcast <laughs> during a pandemic. So, you know, here I am. I'd say you made it. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting to me. So covering Missouri politics for St. Louis Public Radio, um, you're, I think, among the things that may, you may feel privileged about, and maybe it's you as a person, or maybe it's just it worked out like this, I find uh, public radio to be very fair. Um, so like in, in today's, I guess you could say, oh, got a little sound coming through. Yeah, it's probably like somebody... Oh, okay. Mowing their lawn, and if you hear like big screaming during this, this like, is this is pandemic media. I'm down with it. If a dog barks, I'm cool with it. It's it's yeah. It's I, I apologize to your listeners ahead of time. So. No, 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 no worries. So whenever you have like the biggest podcast in the world all doing it this way, like uh, who are, who am I to complain? No, is is the, is it nice to you to be able to kind of. And maybe people would disagree and you'll have an opinion on it, but is it nice to be able to report more straight facts? Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of difficulties with that, but you don't actually have to create a pro wrestling character to kind of get your stories across. I, I, I would find that to be almost soothing as a journalist and the way kind of politics are right now. Yeah, at, at this point, I'm in year 14 of my professional journalism career. And I kind of compare it to like working at a cake factory. Um, and this is going to be a really overwrought metaphor. So just bear with me for a second. Buckle if, in. if you work at a cake factory, um, you're not going to come home every day and want to just eat a bunch of cake right. because you're around cakes all the time. And with being in reporting on Missouri politics, when you come home and you're finished reporting, obviously like the things that you cover, you're, you're still thinking about at the end of the day, mm -hmm. but because that is so seeped into my professional identity, like you kind of become accustomed to just talking to people with very wide points of view that are different from each other yeah, and trying to make sure that you convey like what they're saying as fairly as possible. Um, and it, it, I don't want to say it becomes background noise because a lot of times like what people say about politics and policy, you, you can't help but think about it, but at this point in my career, like with some exceptions, you just kind of like talk with people, you, you report on the events of the days and the big issues. And 
you you don't really get like super animated about it most of the time. There are certainly some exceptions. Sure. You know, you know, right now with the with the pandemic and and people like literally dying and losing their jobs, it's hard to separate like being sure. just shocked by what's going on. Um, but it doesn't mean you try to treat you try to treat people as fairly as possible. I I hope that made sense. No, it absolutely because, did. Yeah. Yeah. And w- with that, I guess you, I would say, has there been a moment during this current coverage that someone has said or not said something that you immediately, maybe it hit home with you, maybe it hit home to people close to you. Has there been a moment during the pandemic that's really made you kind of almost want to step out of straightforward journalists and be like, what are you, what's happening here? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I have really no interest in going into kind of the, the like opinion journalism right. realm. Now, certainly if you listen to my podcast or read my stories or read my tweets, I certainly get analytical. I, I, I certainly have observations about politics. I, I will just say things that I think are objectively true that may come out as opinion. Like when Joe Biden won Missouri in every county, I, I went on PBS NewsHour and said, I I think Joe Biden is going to be the nominee and Bernie Sanders lost like the entire race today. Now, people might have disagreed with me, but, you know, today Bernie Sanders dropped out. And I feel at this point I can make those types of observations because I, I've been doing this long enough to where I don't need to like necessarily rely on on somebody else to say that. But, you know, I. I, I definitely one of the things that I think I've been concerned about for many years is kind of this bifurcation of media where you see things like MSNBC be like the left journalism outlet mm-hmm. and Fox News become the right journalism outlet. And I understand that there's a lot of conversations in journalism that kind of being in the middle and being like a view from nowhere is impossible, especially when you're dealing with things that are objectively true. Um, but it, I, I, I've never really liked that idea of like ideologically tinted media. And I, 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 I don't want to say like every media outlet that tries to not be that succeeds, but I really just don't have a lot of interest in, in delving going down that path, being the pro wrestler that you mentioned, even though I am a big pro wrestling fan, I would love to have like a character maybe like Seamus or something uh-huh you know uh but other than that like not not for you in your in your everyday life now that that makes no. sense I'm, I'm curious what's it like to have uh the attorney for uh an acting governor uh mention tongue kissing and you in the same sentence well that what? wasn't no that wasn't the attorney for the acting oh governor. was it okay i was thinking it was that was the attorney for uh the ex-husband that revealed that's the right that against the wishes of his ex-wife yeah and i, I don't i want to make it and i've actually said this publicly like uh al watkins i have no animosity toward him i'm a big believer that like lawyers who defend despicable people are not despicable people themselves. Sure. And I, I even told him afterwards, like when he made that comment to me, I wasn't offended. I knew exactly what he was doing. I, I thought it was, it was pretty funny. I think I've been on record saying that I have zero respect for uh, the ex-husband that did what he did. 
to to his ex-wife because I think if, if somebody wants to tell the story, it should be the ex-wife and not the ex-husband who clearly had other motives. I've, I've said more than enough on that, and I'm sure. not gonna. I'm, I'm gonna try to stay off that road because I, I get pretty tangenty. But no, I, I totally get it. I just um, with that entire story, and we can push forward. I just yeah. I, I want to know who is gonna make that movie. Like that's the most insane story I think I, that you could possibly write. I don't know if the Coen Brothers are right for it or not. Maybe you have to fake a murder in there or something, but. Uh, what an insane thing to cover, especially uh, for you, a guy right here in St. Louis on public radio. Yeah, and I don't mind talking about that. Like, yeah. um, I often put the Greitens fiasco in kind of the same archetype as Ferguson, mm-hmm. but Ferguson was a lot more serious and had a lot larger impact on America. Sure. Like the impact about Greitens was whether he was going to be governor or not be governor, which is kind of like a story that has been, you know, painted in, in many other states, but the intensity, like there was a development every 10 minutes, that was kind of the same feeling, but it was a lot, the stakes felt lower, if that makes sense. No, it did. Um, Yeah. I I still think Ferguson is the biggest story I've ever covered. I, 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 I believe I fundamentally changed not only as a reporter, but as a person covering Ferguson. Um, It's not to say that I like went into Ferguson and didn't know that racism existed, but it definitely pointed out um, how privileged I am as a a white middle, upper middle-class person that never had to deal with the systemic racism that we see in this country. I, I am Jewish, so I definitely am understanding of bigotry but the whole concept of anti-Semitism is in such a different universe than slavery, Jim Crow, you know, systematic just, uh, racism that I am loath to compare the two. But it certainly makes me empathetic about it. And, I think it's a fair way to say it. Yeah. And I, I always like to, to make that uh, caveat because I, I think it's dangerous to compare the two because not all Jews are white, obviously. Drake, for example, is last time I checked is not white, but he of is course. Jewish. Sure. But uh, many Jews are white and they we, we've been able to, I think, assimilate into American society a lot easier than African-Americans have. And I think that that just became abundantly clear throughout throughout the, the events after Michael Brown's death. So no, that was a weird pivot to go from like Al Watkins making making a, 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 a glib <laughs> remark to just the enormity of, of the Ferguson story, but I guess that's what podcasts are for. That's what your life is, man. And the, the yeah. fact that, I mean, you just mentioned podcasts and obviously your main, uh, I, I guess, job will be with public, uh, St. Louis Public Radio, but you're also <laughs> things that our grandfathers didn't know existed. Uh, adjunct professor at Wash U, teaching what? Podcasting. At Wash U, if you guys are listening outside of St. Louis, Wash U is internationally recognized, extremely high-level college, very well-respected, and podcasting is being taught at Wash U. That's so wild, just thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm the perfect age or we're the perfect age for this because I remember just following Adam Carolla to podcasting after he left major radio and him deciding not to do like a dish series 
uh, like Dan Patrick style TV show because he felt like this podcast thing was going to turn into something. And, and watching that to now they teach it at a prestigious university with a, a person who went to the Mizzou School of Journalism who has a great journalism job. Like, what a unique place to be. And I guess let's just start, man. How does that, how does that happen? And, and we haven't even said it yet, and we'll get all your plugs in at the end, but what's your, what's your main podcast that people need to, to check out? So I have been helping produce the Politically Speaking podcast since 2012. Um, our tagline used to be the most longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics, which, by the way, I don't know if people got this. That's a play on Monday Night Raw which is the longest running episodic uh, television show. Um, now it's the definitive podcast about Missouri politics. Of course. And, yes. I mean, it started off as kind of a chat show like this, where we talked about Missouri politics and then kind of morphed into, we interview like a guest every week. And that, and we, before the pandemic, we were, we were doing two shows, one with a guest and one where we kind of wrapped up the news right now. We're kind of, we're kind of just focusing on guests and we'll talk about kind of the, the uh, challenges of podcasting remotely later. Uh, but I, I got an email from somebody who worked at WashU saying that they needed somebody to teach this class. This is my second instance of adjunct instructing. I was an adjunct instructor at Mizzou, but 2009, and it was on kind of like, it was. I think it was basically back then called J105 or J2100. I don't remember the number. Yeah. At this point, it's becoming fuzzy. But that was just sort of like a general like intro to journalism thing. And I really liked the idea of teaching people about audio journalism and podcasting because that's something I have like legitimate expertise in. I'm not going to say that I have like immense technical expertise, but I certainly know how to like cut stuff out of a podcast. I know how to fix volume issues. Um, I know kind of the things you need to check for before you press record. Sure. Um, I know kind of the difference between kind of like a roundup chat show and an interview show and a narrative podcast. And that that was kind of what we were doing until the pandemic, because I think it was like three or four weeks ago that WashU announced that they were going to do remote. And this presented just an enormous challenge for a class like this. Like, how do you teach people about podcasting and what do you do when people are basically in their homes. They may not have access to high-end equipment. Um, they may not have access to editing software like Adobe no. Audition. Right. So it really re required just a complete shift of how we were going to do the class. And before it was kind of more of like a, like here are kind of the fundamental building blocks of podcasting. And it kind of morphed into, well, let's just, let's just have you produce like a, some sort of podcast every week. Yeah. You know, Maybe it's like a reflection on what you think about coronavirus or, you know, do a quick Zoom interview or something like that. I mean, it's monumentally challenging to do because I I know that a lot of people are I know that a lot of the students I have are going through so much right now. Um, I know WashU is a prestigious university, but a lot of the a lot of the people that I'm teaching, you know, they come from kind of varying backgrounds. They're not all like. It's not all like the Monopoly men. Right, right, right. You know? No, so the, I know they're going through a lot. And I've just been trying to be as, as lenient and understanding with their situations as possible. But they've been, they generally have been very receptive to just, you know, practicing just recording podcasts. And um, 
I think we're almost at the end of the semester and hopefully it succeeded. I think everyone who is teaching a, a college class or even a K through 12 class knows that whatever they do is going to, is going to have a lot of trial and error to it. Um, and I, I will certainly remember teaching this class for a long time. That's putting it mildly. I, I would imagine too. And podcasting is such a, it's a weird world. So, I mean, ultimately like this is a lesson in itself. I mean, uh, the experiences I've had, like I'm a person who loves listening to audio only interview podcasts. I love the video side of it too, but I mean, there's just so many different things now that have to back up to it. So maybe it's one of those things where it's a, it's a weird silver lining that comes out of it to be like, yeah, you have to do things gorilla style sometimes. And this is the most gorilla of all, right? Dealing with the, with a pandemic and no access to the equipment that makes life much easier. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think that basically, if you want to continue making podcasts during this time, you have to sacrifice some audio quality. I don't think you have to completely sacrifice it. Like one thing that we've been doing at, at, at Pub, St. Louis Public Radio is like we've been miking ourselves when mm -hmm. we do the Zoom calls. And, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of like post-production work where I try to like insert better sounding audio. So it it, it helps. Yeah. Um, I think people are understanding that like a lot of the a lot of the audio quality that you come to expect is probably not going to be what you always were accustomed to. Right. But I think you would probably agree with me on this. Like, I do think having reasonably high quality audio is 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 a necessity for podcasts even now, because it, if it sounds like muffled or if it's a, a situation you can't really understand what the guests are saying, I think people will go to something else pretty quickly. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But no, it, it's. We just did a whole revamp of the audio here and everything. We're doing it. We're, we help a lot of charities out and everything. So it's a weird thing to, to, I guess, technically fall under that media, right? That that realm. So I guess we have the studio. We've revamped a bunch of stuff. But yes, my point would be is uh, with the audio side of things, as a huge podcast listener, uh, it's wildly important. And I love the way ours sounds right now. But I think, like, I was accused of uh, my good friend, who was our producer for a long time, of having misophonia. Uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with that, it's small noises, whatever, like being able to hear all kinds of crazy stuff and it driving me insane. So I listened to a podcast that's uh, a lot of conversation, and a lot of times the guests are having drinks. I want to jump out a window when I can hear their, their ice cubes moving around in their in their cup or in their glass or if somebody sips coffee too close that drives me crazy so if you just have poor audio quality i think that maybe now is the weird time where people will accept that more than usually but it's super important i i would know I'm, so I'm so glad you mentioned that because i'm one of the people that listens to spotify all the time but i am not a premium member so i have to listen to all the ads yeah, yeah and yeah. i will tell you whenever i hear an ad where it is like, it's f something with food. So mm -hmm. it's like somebody sipping down a drink or crunching on something. I turn it to zero. I It makes me almost nauseous. Like I cannot stand that type of stuff. Now that's probably different from what you just described. But I, I no, hate that type of I'm thing. with you. I, I fully support that feeling. And I don't know why more people aren't like that, <laughs> if that is the deal. No, I guess... 
uh, teaching podcasting at WashU, like, yes, that's unique and everything else, but do you just kind of view it as one more extension of knowledge and I guess your tool belt of journalism? I think, I think so. I mean, I've thought a lot about like what I want to do after my reporting career is over Mm -hmm. and the thought of teaching at a college full time and, and making more than like an adjunct salary is probably something that is like a long-term goal. Yeah. Um, so I feel like doing stuff like this gets you more accustomed to doing that down the line. Uh, right now, this is kind of just as almost a side thing that I do. Sure. Uh, you know, the number one thing I do is raise my two kids. The number two thing I do is, is, is work for St. Louis public radio. The number three thing I, I do is, is enter your karaoke contest and then not come to the finals because of the pandemic. And then number four is probably adjunct instructing. Okay. Instructing, so. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of that list. Let's get into that. Favorite karaoke sure. song and, uh, and, and wow, the, you were missed at the finals. And boy, did that come in. If we would have done that a day later, it would have looked really irresponsible. We were already probably <laughs> teetering, but... Uh, our friends at uh, Jack Daniels Tennessee Apple made it happen, and we did crown a winner that won a thousand bucks at eighteen sixties. Uh, <laughs> you do have some signature songs. Let's break down uh, sure. karaoke performance because, and don't get me wrong, you got in on the showman route, right? That I'm yes. not gonna. I, I don't think you'd be offended at me saying uh, you're not you're not starring in any operas anytime soon. No. But but your performance, your performance, top notch and very worthy. Yes, uh, I'm really glad you mentioned that because when I was seeing some of the other people that were on my same night, I was like, there's no way I'm going to win this contest because my, I'm not trying to say, I'm not going to like degrade myself and say, no, I'm a bad singer. Because I think that if I had to grade myself, I'd probably be a B to B plus singer. Okay. But, you know, I definitely think that my, my appeal, so to speak, is showmanship and just really like you know interacting with the music so to speak so the song that i did at at, at your contest was buffalo stance by nina cherry and that's actually a song that very few people actually remember yeah because it was very popular in the late 1980s and there's been a lot of talk about how like the late 1980s and early 90s is like this kind of cultural dead zone where a lot of music happened but not a lot of it was very memorable and unfortunately for Buffalo Stance, which is probably the greatest song created in the 1980s by okay. anyone. Sure. Um, it happened to hit the same time that like Millie Vanilli became popular. And one of the worst Grammy decisions that I bring up all the time is that Nina Cherry lost Best New Artist to, to Millie Vanilli. Now, it didn't really harm her career long term. She had a bunch of other hits afterward. I think there was a song that she did with somebody somebody else called Seven Seconds that was like a, a number one hit everywhere. But I think Buffalo Stance is by far the greatest karaoke song because it involves rapping. Sure. It involves singing. It has enough variation to it to where it doesn't get repetitive, although there is some repetition to it. Um, so I, I love doing that song. And also it's just like a very like odd song for people because they don't hear it very often. That's why I chose it there. I was going to choose a different song for the finals, though. Okay. Well, 
your your choice there definitely caught people off guard and people got into it and you you sold it so i want to yeah I, if, if i had made it to the finals i would have done something by the killers because the killers brandon flowers and i have similar octaves and i believe i can sing the killers pretty well see um, and there's room for there's room for some performance in there too yes definitely um i've definitely mixed the concept of performance and singing ability with the killers but i'm also conscious that i've tried to do songs before that i really like but the singers are far more talented than me and i try to like reach their level and fail miserably um so i i i knew like i knew like I knew like I was not going to win your contest because even as no, as, as much of a showman as I am, I knew that like, I could not have the vocal skills that some of the other competitors have, because I'm sure that some of the other competitors also had showmanship and talent. And if you only have one, you're not going to beat somebody with both. You're coming up short. No, I don't know. I think people would have enjoyed you in the finals, and I'm upset that it didn't happen. And that was uh, early on in the what I'll call the taking it serious version of uh, the U.S. Uh, pandemic <laughs> issues. Um, when I, <laughs> so do uh, here? It's just top of mind for everybody right now. And again, I'm uh, somebody who we have revenue that comes off of live events and different things like that. If and this is purely opinion. Purely, and you, I'm sure, have researched this uh, more than most. Do you feel like this summer prediction is, like, do you think the public is going to want to go hang out in giant crowds in May, June? Like, I don't, this is going to be a really weird, I guess, transition back into the, to what I'll just call normal life. It is, this is different. I actually just did a story about this on the campaign level. Yeah. And I, I think it kind of showcases a, a broader answer to your question. When I was talking with some people that are accustomed to going door to door or having big events with people. Yeah. One person was like, I don't know if people are going to be comfortable if I go door knocking, that they're going to want me to knock on their door, even in the summer. Like the threat may be gone by then, but a lot of the psychological aversion to human interaction may still be there. So you have to you have to stand a reason that that is going to sink into other other realms. I mean, I know this sounds trivial. We were just talking about karaoke, but I'm kind of wondering like are people going to be comfortable going to do karaoke in the summer? Like they're going to have the same kind of reservations of being around a big crowd, you know, oftentimes like people get very close to a microphone. I mean, we can always like Windex it off after every song. Right. But like, I know that sounds a lot more trivial, especially if like you don't have employment right now, but it, it kind of goes into your question. I do think that there's going to be a lot of discomfort, even when a lot of the social distancing stuff is is lifted. And I, I don't know what it's going to take. We're in just very uncertain times. This is so much different than 2008 and 2009, which were very, very serious times for a lot of people. Um, but again, back then you had like this social dynamic to fall back on. I'm not saying that worked for everybody. And I'm not saying that like everybody was as privileged to be able to use that as a way to get by during tough times. Right. But what I'm trying, the reason I keep bringing this up, and I brought it up in my conversation with Sarah Kenzie last night, is 
that just doesn't exist right now. No. And that just makes me wonder, like, what is the what is the psychological toll of that? Even if you do have a job that you don't have those outlets and what's going to be the long term ramification? I Somebody said that there's going to be like millions of academic papers on this time about the different ways that affected society. And I, I, I don't know. Millions may be hyperbole, but there's going to be a lot of study into what happened during this time. This is not obviously the first pandemic. There was a pandemic in 1918, obviously, but it's definitely like a pandemic that's happened with modern medicine during like mass communication times um, and in in a much different infrastructure than, you know, the 1910s. I'm interested too, and I'm not even saying to show favor or anything. This is your realm, but Will this gravely or gravely greatly shape the presidential election if they even, I guess, hold it on time? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I ask that, and I'm also internally like, does it? I don't know because I think it's still uh, such an us versus them vibe in our country right now. I, I mean, I don't think there's any way you can think that even if – so I'm hesitating when I'm answering that question because when – the whole Eric Greitens fiasco was going on. I went mm-hmm. on a lot of shows like this and they asked me like, what's going to be the impact of Eric Greitens on the November election? And I kept saying, well, we don't know. He might be gone by then and it may have no effect right? because we just don't know. And he resigned in late May and was gone by June. Frankly, I don't think Eric Greitens had any effect on the 2018 election because people kind of thought of it, of other things with this situation. This has been such a monumental flashbulb moment for a lot of people that it's going to be really difficult to separate this experience from how people feel about policymakers and especially executive policymakers when it comes to election time. I, I am, I've, I've long ago given up on the business of predicting elections. Sure. As I said in my Sarah Kenzier talk, I, I, sheepishly said that I didn't think Donald Trump would win. And I I, I don't cover national politics. So I, right. I often was a little bit more brazen on like opining on national politics than state politics. And after that, I'm like, I'm never predicting anything again. Like, <laughs> I, I don't really think we should really be doing that anyways. And that was right. kind of a big lapse of judgment for me back in like 2015 or 16. But like, I don't know what effect this will have. Like, Again, you would have asked me in 2016, I would have thought the excess Hollywood tape would have been a death knell for Trump. Because if you thought about it, and if you experienced like the Todd Aiken implosion in 2012, you would think, well, what Trump said in that video was arguably just as bad as what Todd Aiken said on Charles Jacobs show. This should lead to the same results. And it didn't. That's just kind of why like, you can kind of go back to past experiences as a guide and reference, but it's never necessarily like a a window into the future, so to speak. So I guess it's a long winded way of saying like, I think it's going to affect the election. I just don't know how. Yeah, I don't either. And and it's interesting too. And the real uh, person who's super confused in all of this, and I, I shout him out all the time, Howard Dean, he's like, I just changed the pitch of my voice and I was no longer viable. Like to this day, I'll never forget poor Howard Dean and what he's probably, <laughs> what his people would think of some of the things that have happened since. Oh, I remember that. I think I was actually watching that speech live 
it was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh i mean i shout I, out to I, howard dean think, I, I i you do have to keep in mind though that like there were other dynamics if i actually remember the 2004 election very well and i mean mm-hmm. it's probably one of the first elections i remember like crystal clear like howard dean was kind of this insurgent candidacy who then got like mercilessly attacked like he and uh Dick Gephardt got into a very public <laughs> sparring match in Iowa. They effectively canceled each other out. Kerry won, and his momentum was pretty much unstoppable at that point. So I know people like to say the Dean scream ended him, <laughs> but there were other things. Okay. But that is a very – I still I, I, I still think that – I think your point is well taken, though. It was, <laughs> it's hard to believe that that was like the harbinger of the end of a campaign and – now here we are. So yeah, that's I, fair. I, I will say this on the, this current presidential campaign. I've said this jokingly. Things have not been the same since uh, Juvenile got on stage with Tom Steyer in South Carolina. Everything has just gone completely haywire since that point. <laughs> See, this is the quote that we'll put out there: Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio. Uh, really making the or the the statement of the uh, of the political season with that, and I appreciate that about you. Uh, I'm curious, this what did you think? And I so more and more it gets blended. Um, <laughs> so I've been following mixed martial arts since I could walk. I feel like I remember watching VHS tapes more and more. Dana White has uh, has adopted Vince McMahon tactics. Certainly holds him in high regard. Um, they just had a giant wrestling at WrestleMania with no crowd. And I've mm-hmm. seen things about it online. Now you have uh, Dana White, who's just been hell bent on putting these uh, MMA fights on. And I heard rumor of an island, a private island that he's doing. Like it's happening. And he said on ESPN, he's doing weekly fights. And then now I'm hearing it's going to be on tribal lands in California. Who knows? It's crazy. Let's go back to your boy, Vince, and the event <laughs> that was WrestleMania that was one of a kind. As a wrestling fan, did you tune in? How did you feel about the decision? Um, is that irresponsible even? Uh, where did you stand on the uh, on the WrestleMania with no crowd? Okay, so I did not tune in. I am a wrestling fan, but I consider... I used to be like a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. I went to WrestleMania 13. I saw Stone Cold Steve Austin and Bret the Hitman Hart in a five-star match. I saw it live. It was the great one of the greatest sporting moments in my entire life. That's amazing. Um, I've been to a Royal Rumble. I've been to a Survivor Series in St. Louis. But, I mean, I consider myself now a very sporadic wrestling fan. Okay. All right. There, there's just so many other things in my life that take precedence. But I I don't – I didn't really have a, a strong feeling one, or, one way or the other of them going through with WrestleMania without a crowd. Yeah. As long as they were just, like, doing – all the due diligence they needed to do and testing all the wrestlers and making sure they didn't have fevers and washing their hands a lot, I guess. Right. I mean, it's up to them. Like they, they can make that decision. I can't imagine for the viewer, it was as exciting as seeing like the crowd react to something. I go back to that Steve Austin, Bret Hart match. I was in like the upper deck of what was called the Rosemont horizon back then. It's now the all state arena. Okay. And, Back then, Steve Austin was a heel, and then Bret Hart was a face. And what happened in that match was a very organic crowd reaction that everybody was just decided to root for Steve Austin and boo Bret Hart. Like, there's no other feeling like 
being a part of that moment. So like when there's no crowd and you can't like absorb the reaction to things, whether it be like a crowd not reacting to a match or reacting to the fact that like Braun Strowman and Drew McIntyre and other respective champions, I can't imagine that it like is that exciting to a viewer. I did hear though that the two pre-tape matches, the Boneyard match between Undertaker and AJ Styles and the Firefly Funhouse match where uh, Bray Wyatt went against John Cena, that it those were universally acclaimed because they were able to do some creative things with like editing and theatrics and stuff, um, which they it's not really a new concept. If, if you're a wrestling fan and you've been following it as intensely as others, you all, you all know about like the Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy thing where he like becomes like this weird like character and talks about deleting people and throwing people in like a, a pit. Like it's the same concept <laughs> yeah. of like pre-taped cinematic stuff, which which may become the norm before they can get back to crowds. So, I, I, so, so yeah, that's kind of my, my, I, I did kind of watch the recap of it. So I'm glad you asked that question because I was prepared for it. I just didn't watch it live because <laughs> no. it's just not something I was super interested in doing. So. That makes sense. I, I I'm absolutely, I'm not going to buy pay-per-views, but, uh, the the fights coming up i'm not gonna lie like i'm a little like I, I feel the same way about you i'm like yeah they're adults and if they choose to do that and they are doing it like how is that that much different and people will enjoy it and people consume it and they don't have to watch it if they don't want to but i guess i'm pretty excited about uh just some live action to watch anyway so yeah with your with your family being at home and you being stuck in how, how old are your children my children are six and two Six and two. Okay, so super young still. I was going to say, is this a good time to kind of impart some journalistic tips and wisdom on the kids? Do you want your kids to follow in your footsteps a little bit? I mean, it, it's kind of, it, it's, I could just see that being an easy crossover because you're, A, you're working and it's what you do, and then they're just going to be curious, but they are very young. So that's a good question. It's not something I've thought about. And I really doubt that they're going to do that. And I'm going to tell you why. My parents were either marketers or in the advertising business. Um, they both graduated from the Mizzou J School. And for whatever reason, when I was growing up, I did not want to follow in their footsteps. I did not want to become someone who sold ads to magazines, yeah. even though I probably would be in a much bigger house right now. Than <laughs> you know, being a reporter, sure. it just didn't interest me. I was interested in, in reporting and I was interested in using like the, the passion I had for writing and making a profession out of it. So I would imagine that when my kids are as exposed to somebody who is in the, the, the journalism business as much as they are now, mm -hmm. uh, they may not be as passionate about it because it's just something that's kind of on like wallpaper for them. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I would be happy with them doing whatever they wanted. Like if they became like scientists or, or lawyers and then like paid for our retirement, I would be overjoyed by that. I'm, I know I've, <laughs> I've kind of been like a kind of low key talking about kind of how the journalism profession is pay wise and I'm doing fine right now. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm oh, not, sure. it's just, a lot of journalists don't get into journalism because they want to become rich. 
they do it because they want to do work that impacts across like a wide audience and be able to be heard by a wide audience and right. being able to be known for their craft. And the, and the, the sacrifice for that is oftentimes like they, they kind of live fairly middle-class existences as opposed to like a lot of my friends who decided to become lawyers who <laughs> are in a, again, houses that are five times the size of mine. But even that, I, I also know that that's also a very stressful profession. Every profession is stressful. No profession is perfect. Journalism is certainly no exception, but I have no regrets about wanting to become a journalist. I think it's been the, the greatest possible professional path for me. I've been able to do just amazing things throughout my entire career. I, you mentioned plugs. I'm going to plug St. Louis Public Please. Radio. St. Louis Public Radio has allowed me to do things that I never imagined I would ever able to do in journalism. Like if you asked me in 2006 when I started off, I'm going to be like sending off five, four and five minute features to national NPR. I would have said you were crazy. <laughs> I've done that like 35 times. That's amazing. You know, that sounds like I'm bragging and I, maybe I am, but it's just the enormous honor of being able to do that. It's just it's it's hard for me to even describe. And then being able to tell the story of your community for for a regional st station like us is also like a really big honor. So I've been really grateful for what St. Louis Public Radio has allowed me to do. And I'm just we're, we're, we're like every other journalistic outlet. We're trying to get through this period the best we can. Everyone's working really hard from home obviously. Sure. And I, I just can't, I just can't thank them enough. So hopefully when they see this, they see that like I'm thanking them and they're you care. not getting in trouble. So. Uh, well, I appreciate also, it. My, my son is about to burst. Into oh, the bring him in. We can, we can put okay, him in the show notes. No, I think it's great. You guys can follow Jason online and obviously listen to the okay. uh, St. Louis Public Radio. Guest appearance. Brandon, come over here. Oh wow! Watch the car video. Uh oh, he wants to watch the car video. Did you <laughs> Did you hear that? What's What's the car video? I don't know, but Brandon, can you <laughs> here? Here he is. What's up, Brandon? <laughs> you know we are live. Where's the car video? I, I'm gonna move into a, I'm gonna move into a different room. See, Sorry this is that. this is the content we're looking for, man. This is this is pandemic perfect. Oh boy! Now I'm <laughs> in the dark. This is going to be just great video for you guys. So. Oh no, it's it's great, man. I love it. I love that you're home with your family and uh, they're having a good time. But no, I, I was curious too, and I just wanted to say it too, just in uh, to back up your point. I love hearing uh, public radio from St. Louis Public Radio every morning. Still too, like it feels somewhat like, oh, okay, somebody's still there. <laughs> <laughs> where it's like, okay, we we got it covered, and you guys do such a great job. I appreciate it too. So, I'm sure there's some comfort in that it's still running. Sorry, I'm I'm I I do appreciate your compliment, but I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to think of a cogent thought as I'm listening to my kids right now. There is no better way oh, than to God, round this out, through, so Jason Rosenbach. Maybe this is probably part that you're going to cut, or although it, it may be so I... entertaining to people that it, it it goes viral, just like the that <laughs> there was this professor yes. who kids burst into the room. But I feel like now that's becoming so common during this that it's not really that funny anymore. So, um, 
some of those corporate videos of people thinking their cameras are dead, using the restroom, uh, doing different things. Like those have been amazing to me just because just as, as of someone who can relate to it where it's like, listen, uh, we've got Midcoast Media and we've got a studio and all that good stuff, but I am not an engineer and I've made so many dumb mistakes technically that it's like, oh, okay, other people do this too. <laughs> yeah, but I appreciate what you said and I, you know, I'll, I'll just plug all my other colleagues. You Please. Know, Sarah, Sarah Fenton, our health reporter, has been doing amazing work. Eli Chen, Sheila Farzan, they were kind of at the start of this because they all kind of have science and healthcare backgrounds. And then, like, the whole newsroom got involved. Uh, the entire political team, me, Julie O'Donoghue, Jacqueline Driscoll, Rachel Lippman, Jonathan All, Fred Ehrlich, we've all been working really hard. And uh, I guess I could just name every one of my colleagues, but, you know, uh, you know, lots of people for St. Louis Public Radio have been trying to produce high quality work under really unusual circumstances. And um, I, I just hope people are still listening. I know we're like throwing a lot of information about this situation that is all encompassing on people. And I can understand people are like, I want to think about something else other than COVID-19, but I also understand like the, the great, like the responsibility we have as journalists that a lot of people are looking to us for information about what to do and about like how to handle this disease. Right. So knowing that, that, that is the responsibility of a lot of us. And I understand that like my role is like reporting on kind of the politics of this and kind of how governments are reacting. And that's kind of a, a side thing from, from everything else. Um, but I just, and I also, and I plug my own, I plug my own station, but definitely read some of our other local outlets, read the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, watch KSDK, KTVI and KMOV, because all my other colleagues that are working for other local journalism stations are also working really hard during really tough circumstances. Also KMOX as well. Yes, I absolutely. No prop, I, I, I know we're, that journalism, journalists are supposed to be like in cutthroat competition with each other, but um, just like a lot of us were trying to do our best during Ferguson and, and Greitens, we're all trying to do our best. You know, I've seen like the phrase, we're all in this together, which I guess is, isn't that a high school musical song, by the way? I'll just say yes, because it might as well be. So I'm not only going to plug St. Louis Public Radio, but I also want to just give appreciation for all the other local journalists in St. Louis that are, are trying as well. I mean, even Daniel Hill of the Riverfront Times got like furloughed, and he's still doing stuff for free. You know, I'll give he's a, a wild him. follow. So, yeah, we we've yeah. we've had Doyle Murphy on uh, several times from Riverfront Times, and I just saw him post that they got a grant from Facebook, so they get to keep working uh, a little bit longer for, to hopefully make it through what we think will end soon or dissipate soon. So I, I don't know. I hope everybody keeps fighting through it. And I just hope they're able. I, I do. It's as somebody who consumes all of the local journalism, um, whether it's through following on Twitter or actually reading the articles, listening to the uh, interviews, different things like that. I would be in a real weird place if all those people weren't out working hard and uh, covering everything. Definitely. So I'm glad that this can just be a love fest for, for local media right now. So. Has to be. We need them and we need you. And you need to go take care of your kids and show them a car video. I do. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
I'm going to go like this on this interview. I really appreciate you having me on and hopefully Jason, we get to thank do you. this again soon under, under, under less strange times. Absolutely. We'll get you into the studio and uh, come back anytime, Jason. Jason, thank you so much, guys. Check out the podcast. Where can people find the podcast? Everywhere, obviously. You can find it on stlpublicradio.org or iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Um, it, it, it's it's out there. You know, Just type in Politically Speaking and you, we're still we're still doing episodes remotely. Awesome, Jason. Take care, man. We'll t- we'll talk to you soon. All right. See you later. We are live, live, live. We are live, live, live. We are live, live.